young people. Uh, again, it's it's so cliche, but it's true. I've got uh, younger siblings. I've got children who who are fascinated by the world and how it works. And there are mega movements uh, happening. Um, you know, the the global climate strike. Um, Greta Thunberg, you know, a teenager who's led a global movement. Wow, it sends uh, shivers down your spine. Uh, that that that's that that leaves me incredibly optimistic that things are changing, and the old guard is going to be standing down, and the new guard comes into play. Uh, you know, in a non-violent way, I hope. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the How To Be Good podcast, the show where we interview businesses and specialists to explore what we can do to reduce our impact on the planet and live more sustainably. I'm Gareth and with me is my co-host Anchor. So how's your week been? How are you coping with the fires and the smoke? How are we coping with the lockdown and the fires? Um, it has been an interesting week. We, uh, we've we been in lockdown for a few days and we're going to be in lockdown t- until the end of the week. It's not as bad as many others, though. I mean, as much as it's inconvenient, it's only a small inconvenience in comparison to what others have had to put up with. Uh, exactly. And I think for me is more the shock um, because I actually didn't think that that's... Uh, that's going to happen here in WA. But uh, here we are, we actually can see how, how vulnerable we are and how things can change. And on top of that, with the, the sudden lockdown due to the COVID cases, there's the fires that are raging again, very, very close. I mean, we have we have smoke all outside the house. We can't go anywhere. There's smoke even getting into the lounge and everything, and it's, it's just not safe. Yes, indeed. Uh, I think there's... 8,000 hectares, they've burnt already. Um, I cannot imagine the amount of animal loss, loss of their homes. I think there's 59 homes that have been destroyed already. And That's right, I think that's what I read earlier, yeah. Yes, and firefighters are still, are still fighting out there, so um, uh, who knows what tomorrow will bring. Absolutely, I mean, we've we got to pay credit to, to those guys for, and girls for going out there and doing what needs to be done to try and suppress these fires and save homes. But it's, it's again, it's a devastating situation that here we are a year on from the devastating fires in Australia that we had before and we're following the same pattern. It's, it's, it's a case of the climate crisis isn't about to happen, we're in it. Uh, exactly, and I think being in lockdown and surrounded by fires is a, a sign to everyone that something needs to change and it has to change now, um, otherwise it's too late. It does, it does. So today we're talking about sustainable building design. And as both of us architects and designers and project managers and design managers, this is a subject that's really close to our heart and one that's, that we've both had personal experience with through jobs over the last uh, or over our working career, I guess. So joining us is Oliver Grimaldi. He's an expert in sustainable building design running the Perth Western Australian Cundall office. So let's get straight to it and uh, enjoy the interview. Welcome to the How To Be Good podcast. I'm here with Oliver Grimaldi. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you doing? Very good. It's uh, nice weather, nearly the end of, of the summer holidays and the kids going back to school, which will be a delight. And yep. so things are going to get a little bit easier. I think so, hopefully. Good, good. <laughs> so could you take us on a little journey of where you started to leading Cundall's Perth office and being a leading authority in sustainable building? Well, my background is in architecture and environmental design. So I studied at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Uh, It's a Master of Engineering. So whilst I studied architecture, um, I also studied quite a lot of engineering modules which looked at the environmental design of the built environment. So Mm -hmm. how buildings operate how they are as a living entity. And that was always the part that interested me. So once I'd finished university, I ended up working in London for quite a renowned um, architect company for a year and that a was, half. Was it Farrell? Was it? Yeah, so Terry Farrell and Partners, um, at least locally known in London, um, but globally known as well. 
that was that was uh, an incredible experience. Um, I then took a gap year. Uh, maybe it was a gap year that turned me, but um, upon my return, I actually moved more into the sustainability realm of the built environment. So then uh, took up a position with a company called Hurley Palmer Flat, where I moved into what's known as ESD, Environmental Sustainability Design. Yeah. Uh, and so from there, uh, learning the trades, learning the skills in London, uh, before meeting my now wife, uh, who was also living and working in London, uh, but originally from Perth. So um, about eight years ago, she dragged me here to the sunny side <laughs> of the world. I was absolutely kicking and screaming, of course, <laughs> not yeah. to come here to be the sunshine and beaches. But uh, yeah, eight years ago, I joined Kundal, uh first as a senior, but within a few months, I ended up having to lead the office. And uh, yeah. eight years later, I'm now leading Kundal's Perth office um, and working on some uh, excellent projects in this corner of the world. Fantastic. I'd like to take a step back. You said one thing that, that really intrigued me. So your gap year, and you think the gap year may have informed you in terms of changing perhaps your career path. Was there anything particular that, that pushed that in a new direction? Yeah, as an architect student, it, it, it's annoying that you look at buildings in a different way to other normal people. <laughs> and so having gone around the world, I actually ended up looking at uh, buildings in a different way and in different parts of the world. And uh, whilst my gap year was following the sun round, it was summer everywhere I went. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually thought, you know, how can you be in Singapore and have a glass box? How can you be in Australia and have a glass box? How can you be in, in the Middle East and have a glass box? Um, yeah. And it, it, it just dawned on me that, you know, we had to do more about this. So it's, it, there's definitely a different way to actually building our, our, our society. Um, than the aesthetic appeal to glass <laughs> in all parts of the world. So there, yeah. there, there was something in that gap here, I think, that, that sort of shaped shaped the way I thought about the built environment and and the buildings we inhabit. Because remember, we spend yeah. most of our time inside buildings, depending on where you are in the world. Um, but they're, they're extremely important to me and, and, and who we are. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's funny how the gap year and the way your mind opens up when you visit places can inform you. Uh, I I think the works of Arthur Erickson in Vancouver and Vancouver Island that really informed my architectural design career hmm. and how we wanted to to go on from there. But it's um yeah, I I, I look back at it fondly. Yeah. So. With regards to sustainability measures in the construction industry, then are we are we moving forward at the pace we we really need to? Do you think? Um, it depends what part of the world you are from. Uh, I think yeah. it depends what your starting point is. Um, I mean, as, as as a global community, clearly we're not doing enough. I mean, if you, if we were to step back and look at it from a high level, globally we are way off the pace. Uh, clearly, uh, temperature records are being broken in all quarters of the world, no matter which way you look at it, and you, you can't really uh, look at one country in isolation because ultimately mm. everything uh, ends up in the global atmosphere. Some countries are clearly doing better than others. Um, so are we moving things in, in a quick enough pace uh, in some quarters? Absolutely. Uh, we do have some countries who are already declared as carbon neutral, or net zero, uh, countries like Bhutan um, and Suriname, I think, are now declared as net zero countries. Other countries, which is fantastic, that you have other countries who are committed to it, uh, lots of countries, yes. but then you have countries that are not, um, yes. the US being one of those, and the country that we are both speaking from are also not committed to that cause. So um, I think it's got to be a global cultural mind shift um, if we're all going to get there uh, together, I think. Yeah, yeah. So where would you say as obviously we're 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 in australia both of us now and and both in perth which is good for us we normally have people everywhere but where would you say we are on sort of the ranking of the global scale in terms of australian buildings because a lot of the time we, we 
we actually go above and beyond legislation due to other forces. Um, a lot of the time we don't uh, get that as well. So where would you see it, say, in comparison to the UK, which is obviously the, the, the two most prominent places you've worked? It's an interesting one and a question I, I come up often and yeah. uh, it's not going to go away given the accent that I've got and my experience <laughs> that I've had. Um, but it's a fair comparison because they're both uh, developed worlds. Uh, they're both, um, sort of, uh, I say, civilly advanced as each other, but both have different approaches. In the UK and Europe, uh, and we do talk about them separately now, unfortunately, but in the UK and Europe, um, we, it, it's very much regulation-led and legislation-led, uh, legislation which is absolutely... Uh, in my opinion, the right approach, however, is the the sort of the the whip approach. So everyone's doing what compliance needs to do, but I would suggest that without the market approach, there isn't a real competition to go much further than what they're being pushed to do. However, society is is much more advanced and pushed towards that sustainability world than we are. However. Uh, in, in Australia, it's a, it's a market-led approach, and so it's it's very much a carrot, dangle the carrot, and here you go. But that leaves the majority of the other people just sort of uh, shuffling their feet towards sustainability and not really getting there, and and just a few people. And, and and I think that will happen until the government starts to put the whip and the stick behind uh, the rest of society. Do you think the government here will do that? Again, it's a cultural mind shift. Um, we rely heavily on our resources, so it's our economy which is going to drive it. Australia is is largely reliant on its coal and its gas, but that's shifting, and that's shifting at a tremendous rate that I even think we are not aware of. I think we will get there. I think state by state, we've now committed to 2050 um, net zero targets, uh, except for WA, which is still only aspirational, but it's still somewhat of a commitment. Federally, they haven't committed, but I think it's only a matter of time before that pressure is put on. Um, uh, so I think we will get there, absolutely. Yeah. Have you seen any uh, shift in uh, decisions locally in WA? Yes, I have, but it's much slower, slower going. So, for example, we have uh, in Australia the the National Code of Construction uh, requirements and regulations, and Section J of that is to do with energy efficiency. Now, they have regular updates. They had an update back in 2016 and a more recent update in 2019. That update was adopted uh, one year ago uh, throughout Australia except for in Western Australia, in WA, because we have quite powerful uh, lobbies uh, and bodies which uh, will, will push against those things and have a, have a big voice uh, towards the government. So, again, it's a cultural, cultural thing. Um, I think there are gains being made, but um, uh, the, the acronym for Western Australia, WA, is wait a while, and I think we're always going to be waiting a while. And it's a, it's a step from Europe to the eastern states and then another step to, to WA. And until something drastic changes, I don't see that uh, changing here, unfortunately. Uh, but mm. nonetheless, we're, st we're still being dragged by the rest of the world in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've worked together, just sort of to be completely clear to everyone that was listening, we've worked together on, on projects. And one of the things that, that I found is that there's a degree of you sit down, have the conversation, and the conversation tends to be led by the company. What is the minimum we need to do to be compliant? Hmm. Not what can we do to be more sustainable and potentially more cost-effective in running a building? So often I think the, the, the question that is set up from companies is, is perhaps skewed in the wrong way. What's, what's your view? 
that's a multifaceted answer. Um, <laughs> and uh, the reason I say that is because, sure, as a developer, you are going to try and get and squeeze every penny out of the development to get the biggest bang for buck. So you really want yeah. to do the minimum. However, uh, you are finding that uh, tenants, and particularly large anchor tenants of buildings, are demanding a more sustainable building to occupy. Yeah. So there is a, an element of uh, risk factor for developers and building owners to actually bring their buildings up to speed. Otherwise, they will lose tenants. Uh, their asset becomes uh, next to worthless. Um, and so we are seeing a, a market shift in that way where um, I, I, I'd see that there's a, a demand to push that. The other question around operational costs absolutely fundamentally uh the the building will be less costly to run in terms mm -hmm. of energy and water um but there's two problems with that firstly the developer or building owner will then lease that out and the cost of running that building is is they've washed their hands with the affair <laughs> and it's down to the tenant and then they don't really care about the running costs of the building and second to that question again is a larger question around the cost of energy and water particularly in WA, our cost of energy and water is horrendously low compared to the rest of the world. You know, we, we, we are pulling gas out at a rate of NOx in WA, so just piping it down the road is, is not going to cost a lot. Um, so unfortunately, uh, yeah, to summarise, it is a multifaceted question, but I think the biggest shift we are seeing is the demand on from the people and the tenants to say we actually want a nicer, more healthy, which goes hand in hand with sustainability, don't forget, and more sustainable buildings to occupy. And otherwise, we'll move down the road and that building will be full and your inefficient, unsustainable building will be empty. <laughs> It's a very difficult one to solve and will need other legislation to help it along the way, I think, like you said earlier. Mm, I think so. Yeah. So looking at these developments and so forth, what, what would you say are the most commonly used or com most common measures being implemented on, let's say, the larger, I guess, scale buildings? Um there are lots to them, and it depends which type of building. Um, if it's a government building, will differ to whether it's a, a privately owned building. So that's one thing to state. I, I would say commonly used across buildings, particularly in this sunniest state of Australia, solar panels is almost a, a no-brainer um, for, for those. So many of them are adopting solar technology. And not forgetting there are two parts of that. So you've got solar uh, photovoltaic panels which produce electricity you have solar hot water which produces hot water for you so depending on what you need within your building uh, there are two ways uh, for solar energy to be provided um, unfortunately wind energy doesn't work on buildings I'll, I'll say that now I get that question asked a lot and visually it looks fantastic if you've got a wind turbine spinning around and you think it's actually producing quite a lot but unfortunately it it barely produces enough energy to to um, heat up your kettle <laughs> but uh, for wind energy that's why we have them offshore and, and large onshore farms for those other technologies and it goes back to the passive design elements so a lot of architects are getting smarter about how we design our buildings to be more um, suitable for its environment looking at orientation and shading and reducing the amount of glazing uh, to start with that's probably your biggest win and that's where we are pushing our our architects and our designers and our clients uh, to think about it more uh, be before we then start to throw in a lot of uh, quite expensive technology actually if you think about geothermal and other things like that rainwater harvesting tanks they take up a lot of space you know tri-generation technology these are, these are very expensive bits of kit where in, in, in if we are using the environment better we don't actually need some of this technology are you seeing any any buildings or owners of buildings looking at doing more retrofit type of work? It's, it's increasing. Um, well, certainly my experience in the UK, that's uh, predominantly what we did. 
Um, you have a very densely occupied city of London with 7 million people there. There isn't much space to build new buildings. Uh, it did happen, of course, but it was a very retrofit, fit out, refurb um, environment. I think with the blank canvas that we have here in Australia, um, most of it's new build, unfortunately, but mm. uh, there are a lot of the big buildings in the CBD here where building owners are going back in, gutting out the building and making it better. And, and with that, we are advising some of these skyscrapers that were built in the 70s on how to bring that up to the 21st century. It can happen. Um, you know, in fact, some of the older buildings are better designed. They had less glazing. They may look uglier on the surface, but actually they perform at a five-star energy rating today, even though it was built in 73, uh, which is fantastic to see. So you mentioned then the five-star energy rating and that is, is is generally the guide that most of these projects go for, even on new build. What's your view of the five-star energy, energy rating? And is it really enough or could we be doing a lot, lot more? It's a good benchmark. In fact, when you asked the question earlier about uh, you know, roughly how Australia is doing compared to the UK and Europe. And we discussed that. I would suggest that that's actually one way that Australia is, is, is faring better. So, um, the five star neighbors energy rating is actually, uh, a rating which measures, um, your actual consumption of your energy. Whereas in the UK, they don't have that such system. It's purely based on the, the design product of the building, but they, they don't rate and market their buildings based on their operational. In fact, you'd be interested to know that the UK has now adopted and, re- and neighbours have released a neighbours rating for the UK. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what they'll call it because it's a National Australian Building Energy Rating yeah, System. Exactly. <laughs> whether it's the Nukbers rather than Neighbours. Yeah, it has an unfortunate <laughs> ring to it, but there we go. It does, it does. <laughs> um, but they've adopted it. Um, so it's a win. This is where I say culturally and, and uh, it, it's important when you look at society as a whole, how we think about things and whether it's a market-led or government-led approach. There are uh, pros and cons to both. And so the, leading back to the question, what do we think about the five-star rating? I think it's absolutely fundamental that we, that we are able to market and, and uh, actually state this is my star rating. And in fact, if you have to sell or lease a building, a commercial building in Australia, you must declare your star rating. Now, if that's a zero-star rating building tenants are going to be turned off by that because they know that the operational energy and costs will be higher the comfort is likely to be lower it's a less sustainable building so they are demanding better and better buildings so i think it's a fundamental for this type of cultural approach to sustainability so jumping off to actual material types and thinking about that so concrete accounts for eight percent of global co2 at the moment we'll see where that that ends up and it's the second most used material globally um are there ways to reduce this obviously just simply not building out of concrete but when we're talking larger buildings are there other ways that are actually becoming more feasible? Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. It, it is around 8%. It, it depends which uh, research you look at, but it, it will invariably vary between 7 and 9% across the world, which is a humongous amount, considering what else we do in our planet in terms of burning coal and flying planes and driving cars, etc. And and most buildings do have concrete, unfortunately. Let's not forget how useful concrete is. Much like plastic has been to, to our civil society, plastic has been absolutely useful, not not uh, least for medical purposes, for example. And, and similarly, concrete has been able to build our, uh, our societies up. But, uh, you know, discovering how bad it is for the environment, uh, I think it's something uh, ridiculous, like 400 kilograms of CO2 per meter squared, uh, meters cubed, sorry, uh, of, of CO2 into the atmosphere. A simple change in concrete simply by uh, replacing the Portland cement, Portland cement being the, 
the uh, predominant factor of that CO2 emissions, replacing the Portland cement even by 30%, can drop it down to, say, 300 kilograms of CO2 per metres cubed. And you can replace that with things like uh, blast furnace or fly ash or aggregates. Uh, that small thing can have a massive impact in the embodied carbon of your building. Alternative technologies for structure um, widely talked about is, of course, cross-laminated timber, CLT timber, which is a naturally carbon sequestering material. It's already absorbed the CO2 out of the atmosphere. It's, it's a fantastic natural material that we should be turning to, and they are. Um, I think there's a race to build the first high-rise CLT building in WA. There's a few out there at the moment. Um, I'm very excited to see which one wins that, that race. I believe there are more over in the eastern states of Australia, and there certainly are across the world in, in the US and, and Europe. Um, it's absolutely the way we need to go. I know there are problems with it and how high you can go with it. There's a, there's a, a resistance to it due to potential fire risk and other factors, but that's the way we're going to get off this carbon road in a more sustainable one for our built environment. And there are a few other materials um, on smaller buildings. Uh, we, we've seen people using things like hempcrete, for example, which is um, using hemp and a binder to create sort of blocks and barrels, which is a naturally insulating material too. Um, concrete has a terrible thermal mass, so we'll, we'll bring in the heat and cold, whereas hempcrete is actually naturally insulating too. So that already is another naturally uh, carbon sequestering material. And uh, but natural stone is being, being, being looked at more closely too. So are these uh, methods widely implemented or they're just far and few between? They're far and few between, unfortunately, particularly in my circle of, of buildings that I'm working on, concrete and, and also steel um, are the predominant construction types. But that's, that's, that's normal. That's typical. They're, they're extremely good uh, structural materials. Um, now, you know, we've got to be smart humans and think about better ways. Now, steel is better than concrete, but not much because of the amount, well, firstly, how far it has to travel, particularly when we mine it from Australia, send it to China, they process it and we send it back. That transport alone has a huge amount of CO2. Uh, then we're not forgetting the amount of coal, typically coal, that needs to burn these things at a, a humongous heat to bring it back. Um, so whilst it's better than concrete, it's not hugely better. Um, but I think you've already hit on that point that we need to be using less material full stop and building and designing uh, with less materialization within the buildings. What can developers do to reduce their footprint um, and yet maintain project viability? In terms of the overall carbon, there's, there's, there's lots they, they could do. Um, uh, typically in buildings, uh, if you look at the full life cycle, carbon life cycle of a building, uh, predominantly the energy will take over as the highest carbon emitter uh, throughout that carbon footprint, uh, particularly if it's going to last 50, 60 years, that building. So we often try and target the operational side of a building first, get that down to being net zero as possible. So typically we would, uh, so, so there's a movement in the industry now uh, for the electri electrification of buildings, that's a hard word to say, <laughs> um, thus uh, moving away from gas and pumping gas in. Uh, the problem with gas, of course, is it's a fossil fuel and once you've piped in gas to a building, you can't really get away from it. However, if you've, if you've got a fully electric building, you have the option there of using what we call dirty electricity, which is coming from gas and, and coal, or you have the option of using uh, green power. And green power is, is provided by sun and, and wind and hydro, etc. So a fully electric building has the option to then be uh, classed as net zero if it's fully provided by green power. 
So that's where we would target first. Then, of course, uh, you want to be looking at your water um, and using as little potable water as possible, although that's quite difficult when it doesn't rain for nine months in some parts of the world like here. Um, uh, then actually, oddly enough, in operations, one of your largest CO2 emitters is your waste. So we're working a lot with and very closely with buildings in actually reducing, firstly, the amount of waste and then where it goes. Yeah, we we were lucky enough to speak to a lady called Erin Rhodes um, a couple of weeks ago who's she's living a, a zero-waste lifestyle herself but consulting to many other businesses. And her view was exactly the same, that it's, it's the, the general waste that's coming out of these is, is, is massive impact, but also the food waste that can come from certain types of buildings, you know, certainly public buildings and so forth, is immense as well and is, is, a, is a major contributor to the, the problems we're having with climate. Yeah, it's, it's it's huge. Food waste, it's absolutely right. Food and organic waste is, is probably the biggest of all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so trying to deal with it at source. Uh, many of our buildings have what's called a dehydration plant, which are amazing when they're in full operation. So you actually collect all of your food and organic and, and green waste, put it through this dehydrator, which compresses the matter. Uh, and the byproduct is a kind of compost, which can then be reused in your landscaping. Uh, and water, which can then be used uh, to irrigate. Uh, so things like that uh, are big wins for for uh, carbon emissions in buildings, absolutely. The, the building I occupy in, in the Perth CBD actually is, is run by uh, Mervac, uh, and, and, and we're uh, adjoined to the uh, David Malcolm Justice Centre Tower, if you know it, um, now they have a, we go back to the, the rating tools you said, a neighbours, I think it's five and a half star for their waste, which is amazing. Now, in order to, to do that, they actually collect 16 different waste streams from our building. Wow. And so they segregate the soft plastics, the hard plastics, the glass, the paper, the metal, even your Nespresso pods, if you have a Nespresso machine, your food and organics, um, and really, really minimising what actually ends up in landfill. Um, and so I think that's the way we have to go. Yeah. And and also, it, it's then we go back to the cultural thing. It's then incumbent on the councils to provide more than just your normal two-way streams of general waste and recycling, which is typical in this part of the world. Uh, Fremantle uh, also have what's called their FOGO system, where they collect food and organic waste as a third-way stream. Many councils are now adopting that. Um, again, I might reference back to the UK, but uh, I often talk to my mum, who, who gets a bit frustrated but still does it, has uh, five different bins outside her house. And the council there, it's very normal for them to collect every uh, different aspect of their waste. I think that's what's hard here because uh, if we're talking about domestic properties, you only have two bins. The majority of your plastic you're not able to recycle ends up in landfill. Not a lot of people put the amount of time required to drive to a certain facility to recycle this bit, go to another facility to recycle this bit and so on. So from that point of view, the councils could probably do a lot more on providing the, the required services to recycle better. Yeah, and it it it, it was an eye opener. The the um, the series War on Waste that the uh, I think it was ABC or SBS ran. Um, absolutely fantastic, and people still talk about it um, quite often. And and, and though, again, those kind of things. Let's track the waste. We're we're doing our bit. The people are doing our bit, but the governments are actually throwing everything into one lorry and one ship, and off it goes to a third world developing world country, where it's just all lumped into one and actually not getting segregated like we think we are. Um, but it's it's an education piece. If you want this plastic to end up in your seas and your oceans and your streams, and then you're happy to eat fish, are you happy to eat that fish that have then congested everything you've just thrown back into landfill and into waste? Um, which you know, it, it it's got to start from uh, our children, um, but the government also have to do their part in educating their people about. The, the devastating effects that it has on us as a society and a global society. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and are you seeing, uh, I mean, you mentioned that some of the councils are starting to take up extra. Are you seeing uh, 
the type of movement that we would need to see to, to, to get this moving? Or is it still going to be a very uphill struggle? It's an uphill struggle. <laughs> it, it, I don't want to say that because I'm an optimistic man. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes the truth goes against optimism, unfortunately. It, it does. I'm a, I'm, I'm a realist optimist, <laughs> if anything. Um, I think it will be a, an uphill struggle for a long time. Yeah. Um, I think something's got to kick in. But um, uh, again, it's got to come from the top. It really does. Uh, everyone knows what's going on. Everyone knows that we need to be more sustainable. We need to do better. Uh, but it's, it, it's, it's got to be led from, from the top. I think the local government in, in WA are doing doing well, um, introducing uh, electric vehicle charging, for example. I think the the current government have, have promised to phase out the, the use of single plastics, except for um, specific uses. You know, for example, medical, which absolutely needs single single use plastic. But other than that, phasing that out, which which is a, a massive move, uh, yeah. and that's yeah. where it's got to come from. But I also see that perhaps the public's understanding of recycling and what really happens to the recycling is is perhaps, uh, I guess, misguided. And maybe that's misguided through through media. But, you know, for example, most plastics actually get downcycled, not recycled. And mm. so they can only do it do it once um, and then it's back yeah. out. So, for example, you know, everybody loves to the analogy of, of turning plastic bottles into fleeces. And that is great. It's, it's good that it's done. But once that is a fleece, that's it. It then no longer gets recycled. And so that's going to go somewhere at some point. Um, yeah. So I think there's a there's a fair degree of education that needs to happen. That if we demanded not having plastic for certain things in the first place, that would help immeasurably. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm not on that side of the the, uh, the the chain, unfortunately. So I'm no technologist in what we can do with our waste. Um, unfortunately, I'm only on this side as a as a as a civil uh, a civilian and also as a as a sustainability consultant. And segregation is our f- massive first step, and that's what we should do. It's then on the the, the, the clever people <laughs> to be able to be able to do things with those. Uh, and I'm sure most materials can be used in some ways. Um, but one thing I'd say about waste is, you know, if I had any hope, if I went back to optimism, I would like to think. Uh, you know, even just simply on waste, that waste and not recycling becomes as dirty as, say, you know, smoking is becoming, for yeah. example, in, in, in close circles. Or, or uh, you know, if, to use another analogy, if you're get in, getting in a car, it's not a conversation that you put on your seatbelt. It's just there. But you just do it. We don't talk about it. It's a non-negotiable. It's a non-conversation starter. So is recycling your waste that's where i want to see it and the the whole i think it was it was sit and click or whatever the, the campaign was for putting seatbelts back in the uk when 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 we're probably similar some might be a bit older i don't want to <laughs> mean age wise <laughs> but um i remember that that that's what it was you just got in and clicked and it very quickly just became the norm as you said and and the quicker we can mm. do that the, the better uh, and i think we could we could see a, an immeasurable difference if that was the case yeah, not being sustainable needs to be seen as, as a negative That's right. in our society. Yep. So going back to waste and perhaps trying to bring this back to more, more building type form and so forth, throughout my career, I was always shocked by the amount of waste during the actual building and construction process. What, what's your view on that? It's huge. It's absolutely huge, um, and it was only really things like we go back to star ratings and market-led approach. It was only things like green star ratings that that actually opened the eyes on 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 how we can actually measure and reward doing something with recycling, construction, and demolition waste. Um, and I think without that, uh, again, it would just be thrown on that ship and <laughs> taken to that country. 
now we are actually recycling. It's big business, in fact, to collect that construction waste. There are uh, companies competing for your construction waste, which is fantastic. Yeah. We've, we've just opened up a new economy. Yeah. That's another thing about s- uh, sustainability. You know, people on the other side of the coin saying it will harm our, our current economy or harm your economy, but it's actually building other economies. That's right. Sure, energy is moving away from uh, coal and gas, but it's actually moving into renewable energies such as solar and wind. It's not; it, we're not losing economy; we're just shifting the economy. And it's the same with waste. We've actually created economy through waste. Jobs are created, and a better society is with it. So, I think it's it, it's a lot more transparent to do with construction demolition waste I think we need to do better so again going back to the rating tools they started with rewarding you just segregating and uh, recycling up to 90% now they give you additional awards for going beyond the 90% I think you have to get 98 which again is achievable number to divert from landfill but moreover there's an additional reward if you actually reduce the amount of waste in the first place so not just creating as much as you can but then okay we've recycled 98 percent, but actually we reduced it in the first place and then recycled it yeah um so the, the the more often this is rolled out to our buildings the more educated the designers the builders developers and the contractors become uh again the more commonplace uh it is to to deal with it in a better way and again we if we keep that economy of recycling material going there'll be a demand for your building material yeah so are there quite a few companies in wa or australia that provide the recycling um for construction waste yeah i i'm not going to plug companies but there are quite a few um in, in WA and we've got the space for it um to 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 deal with it and process it other um european and and uh, london for example are not so lucky with the space and have to has to travel quite a far distance to get processed first um and sorted um but i think we're quite lucky where we are uh, we've got we've got plenty around both in, in the northern parts of the metro region but also the south How do you see the future of sustainability in construction? Wow, big questions. <laughs> How long have you got? It can go quite philosophical. Um it, it, it's I I'd love to know. I'd love to live beyond 100 years, 1000 years and know where we got to. Um uh, you know, I'd, I'd be really interested to talk to my, you know, if I ever have them grandchildren. And they listen to me and say, "Did did you really not recycle? <laughs> <laughs> did you really have cars that had petrol? Wow, wow Granddad! <laughs> <laughs> um, how far it can go? It, it's it's amazing uh, how how quick the world is advancing. If you think we where we were a hundred years ago, just into our industrial revolution." And how far we've come that we have something in our hand that's more powerful than the early NASA computers, that, that being our mobile phones. Who knows where it can take us? Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting question to try and answer. Um, and I'd love to know where it could go. But it is accelerating. Um, and I think most people are on board. People are willing. Building owners are willing. Um, Um, and heaven forbid governments are now willing to do the right thing um it, it's it's uh, there, there's something called the living building challenge if you've heard of that uh, which is a again if we're going back to rating tools and certifications for buildings it's a us based but now have a, a branch here in australia we've just had our first building certified as a living building challenge building uh, which was uh, the sustainable buildings research center in the university of Wollongong, which uh, my company actually worked on um, it's a building that is uh, essentially net positive net positive energy producer net positive water producer um, and so on so it's it's a building that actually gives back it doesn't just take from the environment it's a building that gives back to the environment uh, the next one to be certified is imminent or has been 
Uh, if you look it up, it's the Burwood Brickworks project in Melbourne. It's a shopping centre, the world's proclaimed as the world's uh, most sustainable retail shopping centre. Um, will be certified as a living building challenge building. Mm-hmm. Uh, an amazing building uh, that every detail and every facet of the building was thought about um, even down to uh, recycled uh, handles recycled coat hooks um, uh, locally uh, reclaimed bricks they've even got old bathtubs for planter pots um, and amazing I, I could go on but it, uh, yeah e- even the two megawatts of solar PV so it's almost off grid even a, even a net generator so uh the future of sustainability for, for the built environment that's why i like to see it um very rigorous it's, it's a long journey to go to bring everyone onto that journey but it's a learning curve uh, isn't it that's the thing it's, it's a learning curve it absolutely it'll is. become almost second nature this is the building trade this is what you have to do rather than we're trying to figure out what we need to do and what we should do to make it better yeah, if I go back to optimistic me, that's where I'd like to see it is um, is buildings that actually uh, live and breathe the environment that they occupy and actually give back to its local and global environment. Considering the climate emergency we're all in, do you think it's changing fast enough? Um, no, uh, and unfortunately, I have to go back to the pessimistic me. <laughs> Uh, we do a lot of what's called climate change adaptation risk analysis for our buildings. So uh, with with uh, global data and research, we've got trajectories for the future climate and um, they put them on different paths. Uh, so a pessimistic through to optimistic path. The, the very optimistic is assuming that all world governing bodies are, are on board mm. and we're rampant about changing um climate change or the worst case trajectory nothing happens it's business as usual and it's it's a steady road to oblivion um unfortunately we're somewhere closer to the oblivion line um but it's curving downwards slowly unfortunately even on one of the most optimistic pathways is that everybody jumps on board and, and actually pulls together as a global community there's still a lag there's still a lot uh, being pumped out into our environments that unfortunately we will see, see uh, temperatures rising for example for a little while yet um, but um, yeah uh, it's uh, I think we've, we've got a lag maybe of 10 or 15 years before we really see a proper downturn however no one predicted a, a global pandemic that we're currently in that being COVID-19 uh, which has had devastating effects on the world however on the flip side um it's it's actually been a benefit to the to, the, to the environment to the climate uh less cars being driven less plane flights being taken i actually saw a video of, of venice the other day uh, if anyone's visited venice and the canals you, you, you can't see anywhere into the water very dirty very murky water but uh, you can actually see right to the bottom you see fish swimming um i think they've seen uh, even dolphins <laughs> visiting the river uh, it's fantastic just completely naturally cleaned up um so and you know may- maybe there's another one of those i'm not hoping for that by the way no, no. <laughs> so got a couple more questions and then we'll let you get back to your, your regular job no it's been great so <laughs> Understanding the climate emergency, what keeps you up at night? Immediately, um, I guess it's it's my immediate environment and my clients, but globally and for the future, I think had I not had kids, I would think about it differently. But actually, th- and it's, it's so cliche to say. It it's sounds, just so sounds, true though, isn't it? it? But it is so true. It's absolutely true. You know, I've got two boys. I absolutely hope for the best for them mm. and for them to understand what they need to do. You know, if if I could do anything, it's it's leave the world a better place than I found it. Yeah. And so on. And 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 leaving them to understand that they then need to do the same. Um so so that does actually keep me up at night. It does worry me what, what sort of future they have. And the climate is one of those. 
um you know a society grows great when old men plant trees they know whose shade they shall never sit in um that that is 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 something i try and live by you know so and that that's that's about you know giving back to society, future generations that's Absolutely. exactly what we need to do yeah okay to to tap into your optimistic self then which you want to be <laughs> what uh what makes you most optimistic about the future then? Um, and hopefully yeah. there is something because <laughs> otherwise <laughs> it, I'm it, taking it is. away you're not optimistic otherwise. <laughs> I am optimistic. Um, I would say young people. Uh, again, it's it's so cliche, but it's true. I've got uh, younger siblings. I've got children who, who are fascinated by the world and how it works and there are mega movements uh, happening. Um, you know, the, the global climate strike, um, Greta Thunberg, you know, a teenager who's led a global movement. Wow. It sends uh, shivers down your spine. Uh, that, that, that's, that, that leaves me incredibly optimistic that things are changing and the old guard is going to be standing down and new guard comes into play. Uh, you know, in a non-violent way, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So if there is one thing that we can all change to reduce our impact on the, our planet's health, what would that be? How can we be good? One major thing. Um, that's a difficult question to answer. There's so much. Um, well, in this part of the world, I think put some solar panels on your house if you haven't got them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Saves you a lot of money. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's the biggest win. That's yeah. that that for me is 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 the, the, there were so many. There's a shopping list I could give you, but if I had to put uh you know something at the top of the basket it would be um generating energy from the sun. Fantastic, thank you. So wrapping up then, if people want to get help, ESD help and so forth with future projects and everything so where can they get hold of you well uh, i'm on many social media outlets not least uh, linkedin um, oliver grimaldi uh, and working for kundal uh, which is a global outfit of engineers and sustainability consultants based in perth but um, like myself and all of my colleagues around the world um, we're here changing the world and making it a better place one building at a time Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Oliver, for being on our show. It has been amazing to get to know you and also to learn from the wealth of information you have left us with. The reason we are talking about buildings today and why people like Oliver are needed in the industry is because globally, building operations account for about 28% of yearly emissions and the embodied carbon of all buildings through the construction process is about 11% annually. So nearly 40% of our um, emissions come from uh, building. We urgently need to address the carbon emissions from building and construction industry, but also we need to address it through um, each building's life. And we are asking you to use the information in your day-to-day -day life as a tenant, as a buyer and as a user. As Oliver said, after all, we spend most of our time in buildings. Oliver has also left us with another item on our hard-to-be-good list, green energy. Put some solar on the roof is such an important investment for your property running costs and also for the future of our planet. As usual, we'll put all the details on the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and rate to the podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we also share other bits of information. And get involved in our How To Be Good podcasts. On our website, www.howtobegood.com.au, we also have a voicemail feature. So if you want to leave us a message, have ideas or other topics or questions, leave us a message. You may even be featured on the show. Until next time, stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.